The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with Wings Over New Zealand, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from the latest news to historic happenings around New Zealand and the world. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird restorers, warbird owners, historians, modelers, authors, photographers, and many, many others. Sign up to Wings Over New Zealand now. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great supporters ahead from Fly DC-3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota, and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. special Wings Over New Zealand show. This episode was recorded at the Hamilton Airport Motor Inn on the occasion of the Royal New Zealand Aero Club's annual dinner. The guest speaker is familiar to listeners of the one show because it's Noel Cruz and he is introduced by the Waikato Aero Club's CFI, Roger Crookshank. For our guest speaker tonight, I'd just like to um, make a brief introduction <coughs> And I uh, put some my version of some short notes together, which I thought would be adequate to introduce our guest. The guest put some notes together which thought would introduce, introduce himself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if I may, without stealing any of our guest's uh, thunder, I'd just like to touch on a few items of Noel's background to give you an idea of where he came from, apart from Australia. And what he's done. <clears throat> the, really good, the really good thing is that in about 1961, he started off as a tarmac hand at the Royal Victorian Aero Club. He's an Aero Club boy. Fantastic. Um, gave his civilian pilot's licence in Chipmunks, so he's not only an Aero Club boy, he's British. In 62, joined the Royal Australian Air Force, <coughs> the trainee, excuse me, I'm a bit broke, flew, flew um, wind eels and vampires. Through the various years in the 60s, um, went on to fly at Williamstown in Sabre. Um, civilian commercial pilot licence in 64, jumping to about 66, went to 77 Squadron at Butterworth in Malaysia, <coughs> again flying to Sabre. Shortly afterward, about that period, he was attached to 79 Fighter Squadron at Royal Thai Air Force Base Ubon in Thailand and flew in what we now term the Vietnam conflict. And there are some interesting stories, I've heard just a few. I'm not going to get them tonight. <clears throat> in the 70s, Noel was back in Australia flying um, combat instructor in the Sabre and a Mackie. 71 went to Richmond and started flying caribous, but a change from a jet to a caribou. Um, however, <clears throat> Noel then went on as a jet captain in the caribou 
middle 70s into the RAF School of Technical Training at, if I can say this name, Wagga Wagga. Fair enough, good old. As a management and instructional methods instructor, it sounds like pest flying almost. However, reality um, struck, I guess, later in the mole, um, re-evaluated some civilian licenses in the late, or mid-76, coaching competitive aerobatics in the Australian Aerobatic Club. Um, 78, resigned his commission as, right down here, Wing Commander, yes. Wing Commander. 1980, uh, sorry. Established the Sydney Aerobatic School at Bankstown using um, Robin 2160s, which has had a long association with ever since, and I can speak from personal experience. The man's a master. It's wonderful to fly with another one than Robin. I sit there doing this, and Noel just seems to sit there and go, Yeah, right, oh, she's pretty good, mate. <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> Developed the um, Red Baron um, flights into Sydney using a Pitts and a Marquiti, pronounce it. 2006, they're about sold the entire operation and came to New Zealand. We took up a position with Alpha Aviation in Hamilton and brought with him a long term aircraft restoration project in Orion STM. And the aeroplane is just lovely. Really nice. Nice job, Mark. Um, he's been, had an aviation career spanning 47 years, 17,000 hours of flying, and done all sorts of bits and pieces. Trained lots of aerobatic pilots have gone on to succeed in the competition. This is the guy who's going to talk to us about um, 30 minutes long. Please welcome our guest speaker, Noel Cruz. <laughs> He's just taken about 20 minutes of my thing. <laughs> when I was uh, first invited to come and talk to you guys, I wasn't quite sure who I was going to be talking to. <coughs> Roger said, oh, look, just tell them about your flying school experience, so they can all relate to that. But I look around at the amount of grey hair in this room, and I realise that there's nothing that I can tell you in flying school experience that you already haven't had yourselves and done yourselves. So I'm not going to talk about that at all. Nothing to do with flying schools. I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to sit right here and do it, because Dave's put a tape recorder there, he wants to record the whole thing. And this thing's got a flash in my eyeballs. <laughs> Hopefully the story is one that you have not heard before. If you have, don't interrupt. And I've got 30 minutes starting about now, okay, we'll see if we can do that. The last time I gave this, it lasted an hour and a half. <laughs> a lot of questions. Um, okay, let me start. Ten years ago, a, uh, a British Airways Concorde supersonic airliner took off out of uh, New York en route to London on its last commercial flight. As it accelerated out over the Atlantic Ocean on its way to 60,000 feet and Mach 2, the captain came onto the uh, onboard intercom uh, PA system and said, ladies and gentlemen, for your information, the Concorde has just broken the sound barrier the most overrated thing in aviation history. That's a curious thing to say 
he was trying to say that it's just so easy to do. Now, from his point of view, of course, sitting in the front of probably the world's most elegant aerodynamic design, because I think it's the most beautiful aeroplane, sitting up there at Mach 2, Mach 1 is just a nothing. It's just completely underrated or overrated, depending on your point of view. He also used the phrase sound barrier, uh, which is probably a lot of you know is no such thing. Because I can recall when I was a kid of about, I don't know, five or six, I suppose, the big um, challenge to the uh, athletic field was to see who could run a foot race, or even just run by himself, one mile in less than four minutes. A lot of you probably remember that, right? And the press were calling this the four-minute mile barrier. And I remember this Australian guy named John Landy was the guy who was supposed to take it out, because just last week he missed it quite that much. And he was going to do it. And out of the blue came this British guy named Roger Bannister. He ran it in 3 minutes 59.99 seconds or something or other and broke the four-minute mile barrier. Now, as a kid, I saw this. I can't remember if it was on the black and white television we just got or the city screen at the movies. And so I'm waiting to see this barrier go crash, tinkle all over the, all over the track. And I, I never saw it. This guy just ran and passed a line and everyone said, cheered, and I thought, that was disappointing, there's no barrier. <laughs> and it's amazing, even to this day, I have people say to me, what's it like to crash through the sound barrier? And I've got to kind of explain to them, there's no such thing. There's never been such a thing. Um, it was a phrase created by a British journalist when someone explained to him there's a bit of a rise in the drag about this point and that the graph went up and down. He saw it was like a barrier. So the word sound barrier is stuck in our in our culture almost, right? But it's only one person broke the sound barrier. Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile barrier. Everyone else just ran faster than or mile faster than four minutes. Right? One guy broke the sound barrier and the rest of them just went supersonic. It's probably, I don't know, a hundred or two hundred runners have gone faster than uh, the four minute mile. And there's thousands, thousands of pilots and passengers who could drive on Concorde have gone supersonic. Now, history records Roger Bannister's name and maybe even John Landy, and history records the name of the guy who broke the sound barrier first, and I'm sure you probably all know who it is and which airplane he did it in. That's the official history. What people don't know is that there was another pilot and another airplane, everyone says close behind him. I have a different view. I would like to tell you the unofficial history, and if my little talk here is going to be given any sort of a a title, it's the race for Mach 1. And let me define Mach 1 for the non-aviation people around here, which there are probably few. Going way back to the end of the 1890s or something rather, there was a physicist named Ernst Mach who measured the progression of shock waves through the atmosphere and discovered that they changed speed because depending on the density, pressure, temperature, etc. So you couldn't actually say that the speed of sound, these pressure waves, was a given speed, because it changed, it varied. So you couldn't compare. So he came up with a whole new scale. He said, let's call the speed of sound one, if you go faster, multiples of that. If you go slower, it's fractions of that. So we have a Concorde doing Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, and we have a Cessna 172 doing Mach .02, maybe. <laughs> Downhill on a windy day. And so that's, most pilots sort of understand that sort of thing. And uh, so we now move forward. I'm going to quickly go through the history just to give you a bit of background to this. To about 1933. 
the big, big conference in Italy. A lot of aerodynamicists and physicists all had this big conference, and they're talking about the speed of aeroplanes. Back in those days, they still had racing seaplanes with biplane wings and so forth. And one guy, a German guy by the name of Adolf or Adolf Bussmann, stood up and gave a presentation based upon what he'd learnt from Max uh, stuff about shock waves and supersonic flight. This is 1933. And he actually said, look, we've come so far in the last 30 years, almost a geometric progression of speed increases, that it will only be about another 15 years before we're actually starting to push the speed of sound in an aeroplane. 90% of the people in the audience just could not conceive what he was talking about. But he presented this paper which talked about shock waves and all sorts of scientific things. But one of the key, some of the key things he said is, and he, he presented this as sort of a, probably not an overhead projector in those days, but whatever. He said you have to swing the wing, sweep the wings back to get them behind the shock wave which comes off the nose of the aeroplane. And his ideal wing sweep for a transonic aeroplane was 35 degrees and the tail 35 degrees. No one had ever conceived of a swept wing aeroplane of any sort up until then. Um, so he gave his paper and it was all just forgotten and everyone moved on and did their thing. World War II arrives and uh, we now we sort of come to the, a couple of the key players in this whole saga. The first key player, um, and you've probably seen some sort of um, misrepresentation of these two guys, but on the 7th of December 1941, the day of infamy, we all know about that one, okay, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And there was a movie just recently about Pearl Harbor. Forget it. The two heroes are not absolute crap. But there were actually two guys who got airborne at Pearl Harbor in P-40 Warhawks. One was named George Welch, and the other name was Ken Taylor. George and Ken got airborne and did what they could against this overwhelming number of Japanese aeroplanes. George was credited with four kills, Ken with two. Ken says George got six, but they could never verify that. They were both recommended for the Congressional Medal of Honor. It got passed up the line, of course, to the hierarchy in the US Army Air Corps, and it was downgraded to the next level, which I think is a Silver Star, because they got airborne without authorization. <laughs> <laughs> which means the US Army Air Corps' bureaucracy was a whole lot better than their intelligence at the time. <laughs> it's an oxymoron, I think. Um, the war moves on. Both Ken and George move out in the Pacific and fly the relative airplanes, and Ken fades from the story. George flew Bell Air Cobras for a while and learned to hate Bell aeroplanes. He then got malaria, was uh, met back to Australia, spent six months convalescing, etc. When he was okay, they couldn't send him back to the Pacific. They sent him to the United States to promote war bonds, all these things, terribly boring stuff. And about this time, there was an aircraft company named North American Aviation who had invented or designed and built this brand new fighter plane called a P-51. Might have heard of it. Mustang. And they asked the army if they had an experienced combat pilot who could assist them in the improvement of the design from an ergonomic point of view, make it really smooth for pilots, good visibility, all that sort of stuff. And George got the job. So George went to North American and became sort of a an attached test pilot, if you like. And he helped develop the P-51D, which you probably were probably the most popular warbird, both from the point of view of what it looks like in the sky and from the point of view of people who own them can fly them. I reckon if you can fly a Cessna 172, you can fly a P-51D. I doubt that. But that's what they say. 
Okay, so George is now working for uh, North American. War is still going on in Europe, and his P-51Ds, if I can call them that, were suddenly confronted with a whole new type of aeroplane, which just blew their socks off. This thing had twin pods, no propellers, swept wings, and went 100 knots faster. and scared the hell out of everybody. And of course, you're probably aware that we're talking about the Messerschmitt 262, which had been developed in the early years of the war, uh, and it was trying to use the Busman 35-degree wing sweeps and all of his uh, design ideas. They didn't get it quite right. They had trouble with the pitch control of the aeroplane. So because of the pressure of war and Adolf Hitler saying you've got to get this aeroplane operational, they brought the wings forward to about a 22-degree wing sweep and left the conventional tailplane down the back. Notwithstanding the fact that it wasn't the ideal busman design, um, it was still a pretty formidable aeroplane. It wasn't completely impervious to uh, you know, enemy or to Allied action, I should say. And one of the uh, uh, so well-documented engagements was between one of George's P-51s and a Messerschmitt 262. The pilot of the aeroplane of the P-51 wasn't stupid. He didn't take it on high speed. He stalked it, waited for it to get home to its home airfield, dropped his gear and flaps and on fire, and then he shot it down. Which was not very good for the German uh, morale because the aeroplane cartwheeled down the runway right in front of the, their squadron. The very clever young lieutenant who was flying the P-51 was named Chuck Yeager. Okay. You may have detected I've introduced two names here which you may have heard of before. At the end of World War II, jet engines were the thing. The Brits had already got the Vampire and the Meteor flying to the end of the year, at the end of the war, and about 1946 everyone was building jet engines, some of them not very efficient. But in America, where they had still a lot of money and a lot of impetus uh, building aeroplanes, every aircraft company started to make jet aeroplanes. But they were all basically World War II fighters with a jet engine. We had the Republic Thunderjet, straight wings, conventional type. The Grumman Panther, straight wings, conventional type. The Lockheed Shooting Star, which is very popular, became the T-33 trainer, straight wings, conventional type. North American Fury, straight wings, conventional type. Except they had a hole at the front, a hole at the back for the air to whistle through the engine. They were still conventional airplanes. It was conceded or recognised by the powers that be that you know, these are getting, are getting really fast. I mean, the meteors and the vampires and these things were all able to get to about 75% the speed of sound, Mach 0.75, before all the hell broke loose. And they buffeted and carried on. The, the national something, <laughs> I'm thinking NASA now, committee, advisory committee on aeronautics, NACA, National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, which later became NASA, they were tasked with the job of exploring supersonic or transonic flight. They, in turn, subcontracted the Bell Company to create for them an experimental research aeroplane to very scientifically nudge closer and closer to the speed of sound, and they could do their measurements and take pressure readings to figure out what the hell was going on at the speed of sound. And this was experimental. A research aeroplane was called the XR-1, and it had straight wings, conventional type. So I had to go faster than all the jets, so they've stuck rocket engines in it rather than jet engines, which you know, were a bit more efficient, and theoretically had the thrust to propel this thing to Mach 1. But rocket engines burn a lot of fuel, so this thing couldn't take off and accelerate. It had to be hung underneath a B-29 bomber, 
and had to be hauled up to 25,000 feet and dropped, etc. So a lot of development went into this machine just to make sure you could separate the X-1 or the XR-1, as it was initially called, from the mothership without crashing into the propellers or doing that sort of stuff, and then they had to test the aeroplane. So Bell had a very busy time during 1946 getting all of this together, experimenting with the dropping, experimenting with the, how this aeroplane would just glide back down and land. And they had two test pilots. Uh, Jack Woolen <coughs> was the senior test pilot, and a guy named Chalmers Goodling, which is a hell of a name, because he was an ex-Canadian Spitfire pilot. But he was given the nickname Slick, which is better for Spitfire pilot. So Jack and Slick were charged with getting this XR1, which later just called, was called the X1, up to an, a, a stage where it could be handed over to NACA to do their experiments. And the target was to take it to Mach 0.85, and then NACA would take over. And they said over the next couple of years, they'd nudge up closer and closer and take their pressure readings and all sorts of things and take their time. Because they figured that it was still going to be three or four years before any jet could get that fast. How wrong they were. By the end of 1946, they'd successfully dropped it dozens of times. They'd glid the thing, if that's the right word, down to land. The airplane handled quite nicely because it was straight wing conventional tail, no different to any other airplane that had been built for the last 10 years. And they're about to start the, the rocket trials when Jack, who was also involved in creating a Reno-style air racer, managed to roll it up in a small ball and kill himself. So Slick got the job of doing all the rocket trial stuff. First problem arose, you've got to shove a lot of fuel into these rocket motors to make them go bang. And they, they did just go bang. They didn't have any ignition system or anything like that. They had hydrazine and liquid oxygen, which when you put them together, goes bang. And they had these, they're supposed to have these two big pumps which shoved the fuel in. Turbo pumps, they called them. They didn't work. There was a design defect. The turbo pumps just weren't ready but they wanted to get on with the job. Right? So they decided they would just pressurise the fuel tanks to a great pressure and squirt the fuel in. So you had these two chemicals, just think about this, these two chemicals which if they touched each other would go bang under pressure in two tanks in this little aeroplane about as long as from here to the table. So it was a flying bomb hanging underneath the B-29 with a whole bunch of people in the crew of the B-29 probably saying, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> And Slick got the job of doing all the rocket tests. So he had to sit in the cockpit and regulate gas pressures in the tanks and all things that you know, pilots don't normally do and then drop it and, and fire this thing and push away it would go. They had several dry drops that didn't work and so there was a lot of, lot of development work but Slick got very good at his job. And he fired the rockets about a dozen flights and slowly pushed it up to the design handover figure of Mach 0.85. During this same period, the North American, in fact, all of the companies, had presented to them all of the data which the United States Army Air Corps and Governor General had got from Germany after the war. All of Bussmann's ideas, all of Messerschmitt's designs, they even had Messerschmitt 262s in the States, and they had the two rockets. Because at that point, no one was quite sure how do you control an airplane supersonically. North American actually sent their now chief test pilot, George, Welch, down to White Sands to watch V2 rocket launching, and apparently just downstream of White Sands where they used to fire the rockets, there's a town on about a thousand foot high hill, so the rockets would go over the top about the time when they went supersonic. And on a misty day, you could actually see the shockwaves. The key thing about this was that the V2 rocket had aerodynamic controls, unlike modern rockets which vector their nozzles and thrust and so forth. So they knew straight away that going supersonic 
was actually not a big deal. You had aerodynamic controls and enough thrust in the right shape, you could do it. And North American looked at all these designs, immediately scrapped their Fury. The Fury had P-51 wings and tail, for God's sake. It was just a jet muster. Scrapped the whole thing, threw it out. Gave all their competitors a 12-month advantage. So that's why you saw Thunder Jets and, and Shooting Stars actually flying whilst they developed this other aeroplane. And it had a 35-degree swept-back wing, 35-degree swept-back tail, because the North American engineers figured out what the Germans didn't figure out, or had time to figure out, was how to control this wing at very high speed. And it turned out to be a very simple thing, which they claimed themselves. They just copied from an already existing American aeroplane called a Piper Cub. They had the entire stabiliser able to move through an angle of about 12 or 15 degrees so they could completely retrim the aeroplane because in Bussmann's own words, he said the centre of lift of the wing is going to move from 25% back to 50% and you're going to have to really adjust the rear end here to sort this out. Something the Messerschmitt people hadn't quite got around to fixing. They probably would have if they hadn't been a war raging around them and bombers bombing the bejesus out of their factory every second night. <laughs> so anyway... So straight away, on paper, we had this aeroplane which looked like it was just capable of supersonic flight. And it was given the initial description of XP-86. P was for pursuit. They were all P in those days. They become F. X was for experimental. So we had the XP-86. They rushed through the designs and started building this thing. So by early 1947, we've got Slick doing these rocket trials and we've got this other aeroplane which is now being assembled which has on paper, at least at this stage, the potential to go supersonic as soon as it's fixed, as soon as it's made. And the government at this point are going, ooh, a bit perplexed. A, they had this potential really super hot fighter, but also they had this problem because they had spent millions of dollars on the X-1 program with its B-52s and its rockets under the understanding that in the future, they would discover all about supersonics and there will be a technology transfer to industry. So they couldn't have these upstarts down the road beating to the punch without any technology transfer. Because how would they explain this to the general public, who in those days apparently were quite concerned about the amount of money that the government spent. They don't seem to do that anymore, but that's another story. So Slick and the company were told, get on with it, do your thing. So they just kept on with the pressure, because they were about to stop until they got their turbo pumps. So the, the pressurised tank system kept going, and Slick got it up to uh, Mach 0.85, about the middle of 1947. The uh, XP-86 was now sitting on its wheels in the hangar, being finally assembled, and it was looming large in the rear-view mirror. And uh, so the, the, uh, the government are thinking, damn we're going to have a problem of PR here, at least, if nothing else, because this thing is catching up, and on paper it's going to do it. <coughs> Bell was going to hand over the whole deal to uh, NACA, and NACA said, uh, no, 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 this is a bit dodgy for our test pilots. Yeah. <laughs> we want turbo pumps, not this pressurised flying bomb stuff. And they said, well, not ready for that. So they came to a deal, and NACA said to Bell, OK, we will contract you to actually do the flying and the dropping, because Slick's the only guy that can do it. He's really good at this. And we'll provide you with the stuff he wants him to do. And our boffins will then analyse it and spit it out every six ways, and then we'll do the next flight. So they planned on about one flight a month, nudging up in 0.01 increments, rate 5, 8, 6, 8, 7, 8, 8. Well, you do the maths, it's going to take about 18 months to get anywhere near Mach 1. But that was the scientific way of doing it. There was no rush from their point of view. 
But from the government's point of view, there was an extreme rush because now the Sabre X86 is getting bigger and bigger in the rear view mirror. mirror. And uh, someone else came along the scene then. They had decided to create the United States Air Force because up until this point it was the United States Army Air Corps. All during World War II it was the United States Army Air Corps, just an offshoot of the Army. The United States Air Force was created in about April of 1947, thereabouts. And they wanted some spectacular thing to do to announce to the world, hey world, the United States Air Force is here. And what better thing to do than to break the sound barrier? So here was a way out for, uh, for the government as, as a whole to say, right, we're going to fast track this. We're not going to worry about all the scientific stuff. You've got a couple of gung-ho test pilots in your cell there, one of whose name was Chuck Yeager. And in his own words, he said he was the most junior, most expendable of the lot. So he was given the job. And they literally took the whole project off NACA and handed it to the Air Force and said, get on with it quick, because we've got an embarrassing other airplane coming up behind. By this stage, Slick had already done two NACA test flights. And all this negotiation was going on back east while he's flying out of Muroc Air Base out in California. And he didn't know about it until they walked up one day. Oh, I forgot to mention, Slick had, because of his flying, his flying bomb, had been offered, as part of this new deal, $50,000 a year for the next three years. 50 grand enough, our money these days is not very much. Back then it was a lot of money. But he was flying a bomb and may not have even survived the experience. So $150,000 was what he was offered, and it was sort of a, a handshake contract. He'd done two flights when they walked up and said, uh, Slick, deal's off. This Jaeger guy in the Air Force is going to take over from you, and uh, yeah, we'd like you to check him out and show him how to do it. And Slick said, <laughs> and walked out. <coughs> down tools and walked out because Slick had been shafted. And I think I would have done exactly the same thing. He really got shafted. He went to Hollywood and became a movie star. <laughs> Never been heard of since. <laughs> So the Air Force took it over, Jaeger was given the job, and it took about a month, because Jaeger was a pretty hot pilot, it took him about a month just to get a handle on the pressure valves on it, and they did, he did two or three uh, drops, just glide drops, to just reinvent the wheel, because Slick just, obviously the paperwork was there, but Slick uh, wasn't there to sort of give me any sort of serious advice. So the X-1 program was put back about a month at this stage, and here is this XP-86 now taxiing around New York Airfield. <laughs> whilst they finally put the panels on it and so forth, and it was about to happen. And George Welch is saying, let's go, this thing can beat it, let's compete them. And North America was told by the government, you are under no circumstances to attempt to take this aeroplane supersonic. It would be too embarrassing. We want the big fanfare, the Air Force has got to have the big ta-da moment, and that aeroplane that we've spent zillions of dollars on is going to go to Mach 1 first. And George says, yeah, okay. About um, August of 1947, the Sabre is almost ready to go. XP-86 was called the Sabre, which became the F-86. And Jaeger runs up his little rocket ship up to about Mach 0.91 and discovers he doesn't have any elevator control, which is what the, the Germans discovered at the lowest speed in, the, in their thing. Oops, what do we do about this? The X-1 did have an adjustable stabiliser adjusted on the ground because the boffins decided, well, between each flight we can analyse what's going on and go out and tweak a few screws and adjust it half a degree or something like that. 
but this wasn't good enough for the, the rapid transition of, of, of pressures and speeds as you accelerate the aeroplane, so they had to really scratch their head and figure out what's going on. Now this little bit is my own conjecture, but you have to realise that both of these craft are now at Muroc Air Base, which is in the high desert of California, on one side of the airfield. On the other side of the airfield is Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding School Bar and Brothel. And a lot of the troops used to frequent it for one reason or another of an evening. Some from North America, some from Bell, some from the Air Force. And I wouldn't mind betting it was a little bit of cross-pollination, or shall we say uh, reverse engineering, um, and someone has just had to wander down the tarmac and take a quick peek at the tail of the XP-86 to realise that the way to fix this problem is to make the tail all fly. So their manual or ground adjustable thing was quickly modified and it took a month so that Jaeger could adjust it in flight. And it worked. You got up to Mach point 96, 97, 98 and it was all working. So yes, the target date for him to break the sound barrier was the 14th of October 1947. The first flight of the XP-86 was scheduled for the 1st of October 1947, two weeks before. And George was told, you will not, you cannot, you dare not try and steal their thunder. Yes sir. George and his chase pilot got airborne and the uh, chase aircraft was a twin Mustang. They'd already figured out what they were going to do. He feigned an undercarriage problem when they got a little far away from the airfield. He cycled down the carriage a couple of times. The nose wheel wouldn't lock down. So when they're away from the airfield, they had this ongoing discussion about the nose wheel problem for like 20 minutes. Great discussion, all recorded on their tapes and radios. What was really happening was George was getting to height as fast as he could. He rolled the sabre over, pointed at Muroc Air Base and went boom and took it supersonic and dropped the biggest sonic bang on Muroc. Most people didn't know what it was. A few of the engineers and all those had been down to White Sands and seen the, the B-2s knew exactly what it was. George broke the sound barrier on the 1st of October 1947. When he got back on the ground, he was called into the boss's office and severely dressed down and told, well, since you've pretended to have an undercarriage failure, malfunction, for the next two weeks, that's exactly what you're going to have. They bolted the undercarriage down. He did another half a dozen low-speed test flights with the undercarriage completely locked down, immobilised, which must have been terribly frustrating for him. Anyway, the big day of, uh, of Jaeger's uh, supersonic flight came. By then, George had convinced the people that he'd just run out of things to do at low speed. Could I please pull the wheels up again? And they thought, well, okay, no problem now. It's happening today. What can he do? Ha ha ha. He got airborne about 20 minutes before the B-29 did, climbed to height and went bang and dropped another supersonic bang. Or maybe even a bit later because it was recorded that there were two supersonic bangs on Muroc Air Base on that day, 20 minutes apart. The loudest one was made by the SP-86 because it had to go downhill the little rocket plane didn't at least in level flight. And now they had a problem because here's this little jet which was quite capable. It was not supposed to do it, but we had to have the technology transfer, which obviously hadn't happened. And the Air Force, instead of being allowed to go, ta-da, here we are, world, the whole thing was clamped in secrecy. Not that because it was a super secret, but because it was embarrassing. Super embarrassing. And the whole thing, shut down, secret, no. Nope. Never happened. Over the next oh, six months, the XP-86 
tripled. They had three prototypes flying. They had three other test pilots, or three airplanes, four test pilots. And apparently it was almost a daily occurrence to hear a supersonic bang on New York Air Base. In that same period, the X-1, because of other problems with pressurised tanks and things, flew about half a dozen times. But it was all secret, so it didn't matter anymore. All matter. They decided that the XP-86 could legally, officially go supersonic 12 months later. 12 months. Okay? And by then they could explain that the X-1 did it on this date in October 47, and 12 months later the technology transfer had taken place and the taxpayers got their money's worth, etc., etc. Because the 86 was still far enough ahead of any other airplane flying that you know, we could let the big announcement slip. 12 months. That didn't quite work out because about eight months later, this British test pilot named Roland Beaumont, you may have heard of him, the Canberra bomber and lightning fame, was in Europe for whatever reason I don't know, but managed to ingratiate himself into the, uh, the North American team and convince them to let him fly the XP-86. And they said, yes, but under no circumstances are you to take it supersonic. Roger. He took it straight up, rolled on its back, pointed downhill, and took it supersonic. And then announced over the radio, Hey, chaps, guess what? I've just taken your lovely little airplane supersonic for the first time. <laughs> Tell you how? <laughs> oh, God. I, I probably paraphrased his voice a little bit there. <laughs> now we have serious embarrassment, because A, it's too soon, and B, the first pilot to take their new jet supersonic is a limey? <laughs> no way! So there was some rapid recalculation of things and they figured out, okay, when did George do it? Before Beaumont, but sufficiently after the X-1 that they could claim technology transfer. And they decided the 28th of April 1947 was the date that the Sabre officially went supersonic. Seven months after it first flew. And if you look in all history books, you will find that Jaeger did it on the 28th of October. And the Sabre didn't do it until the 28th of April the next year. Fast forward another 13 years, pilot officer Noel Cruz is allowed to fly a Sabre. The Australian Sabre had a more powerful engine. Cool, didn't have to dive so steep. But the airframe was identical. There's no change in the aerodynamics at all. And uh, myself and my course buddies were given the airplane for 10 hours to check ourselves out before they started to teach us how to be a fighter pilot. I say teach you, check ourselves out, there were no two-seaters. You got in the airplane and you had a little test things, a list of things you had to do that day and you went and did them. And that was fun. That was fun. The first takeoff, as far as I'm concerned, the first flight was far more memorable than my first flight solo in a chipmunk. Because, holy shit. <laughs> Ride number 10 was the supersonic flight, the Mac run as they called it. And everyone said, you brush the nose over to about a 30 degree dive and psh, it'll do it go supersonic. Some of the old hands at the bar had advised us young tads that the best way to do it was to start inverted because no two wings are identical so when the shock waves start to build up they're built up you know one a little bit before the other which causes the airplane to roll quite gently and you can easily fix it with a touch of aileron but the trim drag then causes it to not go quite as fast so if you go in inverted and let the airplane roll it'll roll right way up and you'll go faster. <coughs> So, of course, yeah, this is the way to do it. So I took it up, about 40-odd thousand feet, slowly rolled on its back, and down went the nose, about a 30-degree dive angle, and I'm waiting, and sure enough, it smoothly rolled out. I'm looking outside to make sure that the world, you know, reorients itself at this point. 
and it did, and smooth. So I'm, it's all microsecond think like I haven't, I'm not there yet, so I look inside and I'm indicating Mac 1.1 minus maybe a whisker paint on the needle. And I sat there for what felt like an hour looking at this needle saying, Chet, <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> it was just a complete non-event like this guy had said. Because um, I was expecting it to at least buff it a bit, because when we did the, the so-called Mac runs in the vampire in our training at about Mac 0.73, it would shake and bang and pitch up and you'd shove the stick forward, and by Mac 0.75 it would pitch out uncontrollable. The full forward stick would still pitch out. That was a wild ride, straight out of the black and white movies, yeah? And I thought, well, at least the sable would give a little few bumps. Everyone said, oh, it's pretty good, but not that good. And it was as smooth as, honestly, I'm sitting here. I'm probably quieter. I finally pulled out the, the dive at 20,000 feet and I can remember actually looking up through the canopy and thinking, well that was a bloody great waste of height, <laughs> which was my way of agreeing with the, uh, the Concorde captain 40 years later. It was a complete non-event. Now I was aware of the official history, you know, there had been seven months before it went supersonic and all the rest of it, and I immediately thought, that's got to be crap. How can, you know, this aeroplane, which has not been changed in any way significantly, um, not have that done to it sooner by these gung-ho test pilots and so forth. So over the years I have sort of read books, researched and spoken to people and little by little the true story, which I've just told you tonight, I believe, uh, has come out. That in fact the official thing is not exactly right. That the first guy to really do it was George in the XP-86. So if I could just finish my little chat here, because I'm just about on 30 minutes, by paraphrasing um, a local beer commercial. First flew on the 1st of October, 1947. Three aeroplanes, four test pilots, but none of them for seven months thought to shove the nose down a bit and see how fast it would go. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> well, thank you very much for it. I might also just make one comment too. I was actually born in New Zealand. Noel, <laughs> 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 well, thank you for an interesting um, half an hour chat. I can see why it goes on for an hour and a half at times. <clears throat> really interesting. I'm sure we all found some part of it, if not all of it, illuminated. Um, thank you for your time. But, um, there's obviously something of there's some passion there. You can tell something there. Really good. And I'd just like to present you with these small tokens. Thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand Show.